0: The news, whether it's ancient news or modern news, has always lived by the bombshell story. There are certainly things the news can provide that are, that are useful, that are interesting. Those things can be found in the news, but the thing that sells the news is always the bombshell. That's the kind of story that drops in as an explosion. It destroys a previous narrative about what was thought. It shakes everyone up. and No one is expected to ever recover from hearing the bombshell news. Of course, the reality is the bombshells come every day, multiple bombshells a day. Many of those actually come with a thud rather than the the supposed explosion they were supposed to have. And even those that do explode are quickly gotten over. They hold our attention for five minutes, they become office talk the next morning, but then we move on to the next thing. It's very rare that we hold on to a story for more than a few weeks. And what's amazing is many times the, the very people at the center of those bombshell explosions... They go about business as usual as well. Despite all the things that were said at that moment, it turns out that that life continues on for people. People are unchanged by those supposed big events. But there is one story, one big event, one actual bombshell, the kind that whenever it comes and explodes into your life, it changes you forever. And you can't be unchanged after you've been exposed to that. This morning we have an opportunity to to remind ourselves of the truth of that big story. We find as we go into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the verses that Paul is writing in this follow-up letter to the visit that he had had with with what became a church. By the reception of the gospel, he's going to remind them of the importance of what it is that they heard. It comes an occasion for us to remember what we too ourselves have received and how we can never go back to the life that we had before. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless the both the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord God, we need your spirit to enable us to understand and to believe that which we have heard from you and that which we will hear. And pray, O Lord, this day that you would cause us to have our hearts open, to make us teachable, to cause us to be believers in your truth. And let us not, Lord, be unchanged, Let us hear that we may have our destinies eternally secured with you in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want you to look back with me at the words of Paul in verse 13, where he begins this section by saying, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. He's saying there's something that he said just a a few moments before, if you had gone back to chapter 1. He's continuing in this theme of gratitude to God for the church at Thessalonica. If you look back at verse 2 of chapter 1, he wrote there, We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. And then he says, why? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, our, our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. This is, in both instances, a genuine gratitude that Paul has when he, he looks at and he thinks about these people. He is, of course, a thankful man. He is grateful to God. But he's especially grateful that these people are a chosen people. They've been set apart by God. And because of that, he, he, he's, he's not just moving on from them, but he's continuing to have them in his thoughts because they, are, they who they are is a precious possession to him. His mind and his, his prayer life are continually drawn towards eternal things. And these these eternal things that he cares about are the souls of these people who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. He was grateful for them. And and they are still a, a part of his attention. And so those earlier verses they actually lead into to the verses here. When we read what he says, or what they, they lead to what he says back in chapter one, verse five, which is this which is going to prepare us for what we come to this morning in chapter 2. He says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. It's telling you something about what he's thankful for when he's thankful about the people of this church. But not that they're hospitable. They were that. Not that they were social and could get along with people. They seemed to do that. Not that they were fun to hang out with. He never mentions that. But those are things we appreciate in people. But the thing that they possessed is actually the thing that they were possessed by. Is that they had heard the scriptures, they had heard Christ proclaimed, and they had believed, and that had become their possession. They were possessed by the word preached. So we come back to verse 13, where again, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. They had received the word of God. Whenever that, that band of apostolic missionaries had, had made their way through, through Macedonia, when they had, had been redirected from the trip that they had set out on, and the Holy Spirit had called them into this direction to go and to serve these people, they had obeyed, they had come to various places, and eventually they had come to Thessalonica and they preached. And their preaching came with, with the Holy Spirit, with power, with much assurance. It came as the Lord Jesus Christ taught in the parable of the sowers, that some, some, was, some seed was sown on good ground. And those who heard it accepted it, and it bore fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. They had been made disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, bearing the fruit that goes with being a disciple of Jesus. New King James does us a favor here when it translates the word. It says that they welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. It, it's a simple word there. It could mean simply accepted or or received, but it also means welcomed or, in some occasions, it means took hold of, meaning that they didn't just have it in their presence. It wasn't just something they said, "Okay, I know that piece of information." That piece of information now, but they actually grabbed onto it. They they, they pulled it in close and they made it their own personal possession how was it that they welcomed the word of God Paul here is 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 making this equation It's interesting whenever he says uh he says here you you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God Paul is equating his preaching with the word of God and you hear that and you, you might want to say well that sounds a little bit arrogant right Paul must have a very high view of himself to say that his preaching was the word of God. That it was the same as scripture. That, that it had the full weight and authority of the law and the prophets. And you might be thinking, well, he's got to be saying something else besides that. And you're wrong. It's actually the first one. And it's not arrogant. It is actually what scripture teaches in a multitude of ways. If we compare scripture with scripture, we find that this is, this is what the Holy Spirit does when he enables someone to proclaim the truth of God. Go back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. David, in what are going to be some of his last words, his his, his parting words before he goes out of this world, he says in 2 Samuel 23 verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. David can recognize the Spirit's work in him, enabling him to give something that is, in fact, Scripture. On, on par with Scripture, it is the Word of God. Jesus actually taught his disciples this about themselves. Turning in the New Testament to Mark 13. As Jesus is teaching his disciples about their future mission, as they become apostles, they become sent ones from Christ with his message he says in Mark thirteen eleven. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And Paul is actually going to, to continue in this vein throughout his letters. He's, he's going to be constantly reminding his readers about what the preached word is. Romans 10, something that, that I was mentioning this morning with the young men who were before us taking their vows again publicly. Paul in that passage says in Romans 10.8, he says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Galatians 4.14, Paul says, My trial which was in my flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel or a messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. His, his coming to them as an angel, angels are messengers the other way to translate that word. he says that's how they received him, that it was, that it was a message directly from God. First Corinthians one Word one18 Paul writes in first 1 Corinthians one18For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God verse twenty two for Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what he preached. And later on in that same book, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes in verse 1 Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, by that preached gospel. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. His position is is unmistakable that the proclamation of the word of Christ is the word of Christ to those who hear. And it's not only Paul, but it's Peter that also picks up on this. He says in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is its grass, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The testimony is consistent, agrees with Moses and the prophets. They were given the oracle, the burden of God. It was a message given to them to testify to the people, of a message of judgment and a message of salvation. And of course, to be the gospel, it must be the word which is preached, because there's no other good news, which is what the gospel is, other than the truth of Christ that is proclaimed. This is what sound theology teaches Paul's reminding them both at the same time teaching them how to think about preaching when they hear it. It's what every good biblical theologian wants to do, is to, is to, to remind people that, that this is not something that you come, when you come into the Lord's house on the Lord's day and a minister preaches the word of God to you, it's not something to take lightly. It's not something to, to be indifferent towards. It's something that, that is bringing you to before God that you may be judged or that you may be found innocent based on how you receive that word. The reformers held to this as well. What did they teach about preaching? Well, you heard some of that just a few moments ago when when you confessed it out loud and what our larger catechism teaches, but we can even go before that to uh, a, a confession known as the Second Helvetic Confession. It was a Calvinistic confession of faith. It was authored authored by Heinrich Bollinger. He was uh, Zwingli's successor. You probably heard of Zwingli, maybe not as much Bollinger. Uh, But it it was adopted in 1566 by the Swiss Reformed churches, but also picked up by the Scottish churches, by the French Reformed churches, by the Polish Reformed churches, by the Hungarian Reformed churches, all in the late 1500s. And it has one of the strongest statements that you find in any confession on how preaching is to be viewed. I want you to listen to what it says. I want you to listen carefully as it describes. And this is not the whole of what it has to say about the preached word. It has a lot to say. But in this one section, it tells us a great deal. It says, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. And that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven. And that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God remains still true and good. Bullinger wrote that confession. He actually wrote it as his own private confession of faith. It wasn't intended for publication and eventually was picked up and was spread abroad. But he wrote that to himself, and you can see there where even for himself he was thinking of what preaching ought to be. What is he obligated to do? He was a man aware of his own sin, but also aware of the power and the truth of the word of God. That it transcends the minister, the preacher, but it's the proclamation itself. How is preaching the word of God? Well, maybe we can answer first when it's not the word of God. When is preaching not what it's supposed to be? There are certainly people out there that would call something that they hear from someone standing up and talking preaching, which is not to be regarded as preaching. Certainly not the preaching of the Word of God. There are people that will preach to you about a lot of things that have nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. That is not preaching. There are hucksters, there are frauds, there are false prophets who frame what they do in religious sorts of ways to try and sell you something. They proclaim something, but it's not the gospel of the scriptures. And they have great confidence. They have many trappings. They have all sorts of designs and and accoutrements around them that that make it seem to be legitimate. But it is not the preached word because they are not preaching the word. And no matter how many props they have around them, no matter how large the crowd is, it is not preaching the word of God. But on the flip side, we can say this. There are those who are false but preach true words. Turn turn in your Bible just a couple of pages back to Philippians one fifteen. Philippians 1.15, Paul writes and he says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add afflictions to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will Rejoice, Paul recognizes here there can, there can be those with, with wrong motives. There can be those who are in it for the money. There can be those who are in it for, for the, 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 the fame. They can be in it for the attention. They love to have people listen to them. But they can preach faithfully because even in those wrong motivations, they preach the word of God. It's a famous anecdote, anecdote about a, a minister from the Church of England, William Haslam, who was, who was, who was struggling himself, who, who did not know the gospel. In the course of one of his, his sermons, he was proclaiming the, the word of God and he stopped. And a change overtook him. And there was someone who was present there, a fellow minister, who said, actually standing up in the middle of the service and said, the parson is converted, the parson is converted, Hallelujah. It was evident to all. Ministers, and I don't know if that story is true or not, it's been retold many times, but I can tell you that, that there are ministers, many um, a minister, this minister included, have gone into the pulpit and have come out of the, the pulpit feeling the crushing weight of the truth, of the conviction of sin, and of the joy and peace in believing that's only found by the Holy Spirit. That is incredibly common, however you come into the pulpit, that the word of God has power that belongs to the word. Not the minister himself, but to the word, such that when it is proclaimed, it is the word of God to you. Qualifications are given in the Second Helvetic Confession, our our confession as well, and catechisms. To be the preached word of God, it must be by one who is lawfully called as a preacher which is to say he is called by a legitimate church, one that bears the true marks of the church, plurality of elders, that bearing the, those, those marks which, which declare a church right, especially embracing the word of God. And they call someone who is qualified and gifted to serve in the work of preaching. And sometimes you will hear us in, the, in this pulpit or, or around the church making these very subtle distinctions, talking about someone preaching versus someone exhorting. One of the things that you'll sometimes hear us refer to is that if, a, if an intern is, is, is allowed the opportunity to come into the pulpit, we say he's not preaching. And then someone will stand up and they will preach and you'll say, well, that was way better than Pastor Anderson and Pastor Dodds. I mean, sounds like preaching to me. But that was an exhortation because that person has not yet been set apart to the ministry of the word. This is actually the part of their testing to find out, do they have those gifts? Do they have the competency? Do they have the character? Do they have the orthodoxy to be set apart to that work? Likewise, whenever we examine men for gospel ministry, ministry whenever the presbytery brings in a candidate who, who, who says he wants to, to, to serve the church, one of the questions we ask him is about his call to ministry. And one of the things that we require him to say in there at some point in time is that he is called to preach the gospel and I've seen men who were actually turned away, who came and, and they said, well, I, I love to lead the praise of God's people. I love to stand up in front and do music and direct that. And it's like, that's great. But you don't need to be a minister of the gospel to lead in music. You need to be a minister of the gospel. In order to preach, you need to be a minister of the gospel. That's what the office is set apart especially for. It has other duties and obligations, but principally and primarily it is about the preaching of the word of God. Man has to open the Bible, he has to rightly interpret what's before him, he has to explain and apply it to the people who are present, ready and willing to listen to it. And it is a burden for him. But it's not only a burden for him, but it's also a burden for you. Because it is the Word of God, it has to be received as the Word of God. So, so grab your bulletins again, or, if you, or turn if you want to, to page 961 in your, in your Psalter hymnals. And I want you to look with me again at question 160 of the larger catechism. Sometimes it's hard when we make an, a, an out loud confession like that to pick up on the particular details of what, of what you're saying there. You have a rough idea. I've read this before, perhaps, and I kind of know it's there. I think I agree with this. But I want you to think through the details with me because there are several parts of this. What's required of those that hear the word preached? It's required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it. It's something to be remembered along with all the, the, the other things in the world that you might want to remember. There are things that are dangerous to do, like you know, walking on girders in a skyscraper, putting gasoline in your car, carrying a firearm. All of those kind of things, you, you want to pay attention to the details, right? You want to understand what you're doing before you attempt to do that. If you're working in a nuclear power plant, you want to know a little something before you go into that particular work. But we also know that even with the most dangerous things, when we get into those things that are routine, we, we, we begin to slip into to not notice the importance quite as much of what we're doing. We have to depend on, on good habits. But when we come to the preaching of the word of God, it is always a dangerous thing. It is always loaded and it is always risky to, to hear or to not hear when you should hear. It requires attention, it requires diligence, careful and persistent work, preparation beforehand that you're doing things to maximize your benefit as in going to bed at a decent time the night before. It's something that requires prayer, that you have a right posture, that you're able to receive what's being taught to you. It says that you're to examine what you hear by the scriptures. Comparison is an obligation of the work. We use the nickname of of being Berean, which is what Luke records for us in Acts 17 Part of the same Macedonian mission trip of Paul. When Paul came to Berea, it was testified these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Hearing for them was not a passive endeavor. It was something that they responded to by comparing, is this the truth? It's literally a page-turning exercise. It ought to be part of how you worship is your submission to the word by comparing scripture with scripture. It goes on, it says, that you as as a, a, an obligation to hearing the word preached is that you receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. Reception, it's not, it's not skeptical, it's not cynical, it's humble, there's a readiness to say, there's something I need to learn and I need to submit to. And then fourthly, that you would... Be obligated when you come to the sanctuary to to meditation and conference. Because what you're hearing is the word of God. You continue to think about it as the word of God. You received a general's orders. These truths are important. To, To neglect them would be dangerous. Indifference to those words is rebellion. You want to get to right application on your part. What does that word, what was said to me, what must I do to respond to that? A fifth obligation of that word that comes before you is that you're required to save the preaching. That you are to hide it in your hearts. Psalm 119.11 Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see what's at stake, and so, so you entrust it to yourself. You, you walk away from the sermon with, with a verse that you memorize or a nugget of, a, of truth that you hold on to that is going to follow you out into the world. And then sixth and finally is, is that response of fruition. Those who hear the gospel preached are supposed to bear fruit in response to it. Jesus taught this in Luke eight fifteen. Again, the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word, With a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Patience there being persistence, is that it continues on for you. That may sound burdensome, right? All those things that you're required to do every time you come to a sermon. We're going to do this twice on one Sunday. But again, would you you listen to your scuba diving instructor before you went cave diving? I kind of feel like you would. Or your instructor pilot before you attempted your first solo flight? Would you listen to the doctor when he told you what to do to prepare for surgery tomorrow? Those are things that that carry weight for you. You understand what's at stake. How much more when your soul is what hangs in the balance? Not just your life, but your soul, your eternal destiny. Well, if preaching is so powerful a thing, if so much is at stake and so much is required of it, why would Satan not be opposed to it? Why would it not invite his opposition and his wrath and his efforts to, to destroy the success that it could have? Look back in our text, back in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, you see that this is the response that takes place. And Paul reminds them, this was the fact, this was what happens with faithful preaching of the word. He says in verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Paul lays out there for us this, this kind of astonishing trail of blood that goes through the Bible. It was dangerous to the prophets to preach the word. Jesus lamented in Matthew twenty three thirty seven. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. It was dangerous for Jesus, as Peter testified in Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. That's amazing that they experienced all these things. He continues, he says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. This one who came doing the most amazing things that had ever been done in public, for eyes to see, even the eyes that Peter is preaching to on that day, had taken Jesus with their own hands and had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach word was dangerous for the apostles. Paul and Silas, so recently before their trip to Thessalonica were in Philippi. We read about that occasion, verse 22 of Acts 16. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. It was not a safe thing to be a preacher of the word, and it wasn't safe to be a hearer of the word's Either Paul says back in our text, verse fourteen, you also suffered the same thing, same as the apostles, the same as those who had suffered in Judea when Christ was opposed. No one is immune to those penalties. Paul is essentially preaching to them the parable of the wicked tenants. You could you could look back in Matthew twenty one to to see that parable at the end of it, the conclusion after we we find out that there's a there's a, 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 a king or, or a, a master who builds a vineyard he does all the hard work to 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 structure this to, to farm the land to to set it up to build a tower to build a fence to do all these things to make for a wonderful crop and then he hands it over to tenants while he goes away to a far country and then eventually he comes looking for a return on his investment And 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 when he sends out his different messengers it turns out that the tenants say yeah not so much. It's ours. We're going to do with it what we want. And they begin to beat the messengers and to kill the messengers. And eventually the, the master sends his own son. And what do they do to the son? They kill him as well. Jesus then interprets and applies this. He preaches this to those who are listening. Matthew twenty-one forty-two. he says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. You wonder how anyone could be so wicked as to do the kind of things that that are being done among the Thessalonians. And ...in their community. This opposition, Well, of course, it goes back to what was done to the apostles... ...to Christ before and the, and the prophets before them. And Paul wants them to know when he explains this to them... ...this isn't just politics. This isn't just like a tribal conflict between two groups that don't like each other. This isn't economic misunderstandings, whatever. It's not any of those things. This is ultimately a spiritual thing that is taking place. Look at verses 15 and 16 in First Thessalonians 2. Paul says... Explaining the wickedness, he says, In these they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Their their persecutors are misanthropes. They are man-haters. They hate other human beings. How do we know this? Because they would deny the good news to the Gentiles. To the nations, they would prefer that people be kept in the dark and deprived of the eternal good of their souls. They would rather see them perish in all eternity rather than shake up how things are for them. And we live in kind of the same sort of man-hating culture, right? We see that in the killing of babies in the womb. That's man-hating. You don't want to see human beings live, and so you kill them. What's going on, on now with emasculating and mutilating adults and children depriving them of the the ability to make life. This has now become mainstream in our culture, ordinary. It's a great way for some people to make money. Instigating needless wars, finding finding reasons to to go to battle and to, to, to spend the blood of people on whatever it is they're looking for. And hoarding things selfishly, things that make for life and depriving others of those you see it all around you in the world today. There's, there's a man hatred, a hatred of humanity. But nowhere is that, is that so true as in the hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ and the proclamation of that which has the ability to save souls. Remember, there are opposition here. These were religious people. These were Jews among their city. that were, They were part of the opposition. Very religious people. And, and Paul makes reference to those other religious people that had persecuted them in Judea and Jerusalem. They were the ones who had invited the magistrate to come in and to punish these Christ preachers and to punish those who believed, and they were very successful at it. Paul knows. Paul knows it's part of the package. And yet Paul says, this is what you need to receive the preached word. And part of what he wants to preach to them, to proclaim to them, is what he says in the last of verse verse 16 there, when he says, they do this, but filling up the measure of their sins... But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He's reminding them there, there is a God who sees and who knows and who cares. These things are not accidents. They didn't slip by him. It wasn't just that he provided for their salvation but forgot what to do with his people afterwards. Even these things are, are under his sovereign hand and they are continually under his providential care even in their suffering. And Paul's reminding them these people are, are filling up their sins. He's using this Old Testament language. Think about the when, when uh, we read about How the earth was filled with violence in the days of Noah. Or how how the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. It hadn't yet filled up, but judgment was coming. What Daniel testified to when he says, the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. There are limits that God has. It's finite how much suffering and persecution goes on. Those will come to an end. And there will be deliverance for God's people. And those wrongs will be righted. Justice will be served. But even look back at those words there. It's fascinating the particular way in which Paul says this. He says in verse 16, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You would kind of expect a future tense there, wouldn't you? That You wouldn't think that wrath will come upon them to the uttermost, that eventually this is going to happen. But he's actually saying no in past tense, wrath is already upon them. In some way, judgment was already happening to them; it had already landed on them. And there's there's testimony of how in 49 A.D. that that there was there was there was, uh, there was a persecution of the Jews back in Jerusalem. There was a, a Passover celebration where thousands of people, maybe perhaps tens of thousands of people, were massacred by the Romans. There, that's possible. That's part of the wrath of God being played out. But I think what Paul is saying here is actually theological. He's reminding people of where they are now under the wrath of God when they are apart from Christ it's a settled judgment judgment has come you have been judged in Christ and the consequences come later and they come to the uttermost but the judgment is now it is not escapable there's no sort of middle ground that you can take out where you can be on one side or kind of in some place in the middle that, that, that's straddling the fence and you might be okay and you might not be okay it's one or the other you believe the word preached and you're saved or you disbelieve and you are at war with God. And thus you are presently under his wrath and curse. This is a comfort to God's people. It reminds them that, that, that there is a finite time for those people and that justice is going to be served. And this should be comforting. It's what we find when we go to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, we're told that when, when the fifth seal is opened, John was able to see under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. The judgment is being filled up. But God sees and he knows and he cares. And he's covering them with these white robes. He is declaring them innocent. The verdict is already in. You are innocent because you have clinged to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. His mercy is found in that promise. His words can be trusted. They can be rested upon. They can be waited upon both for them and for you. So how do you respond to the word about responding to the word? Those are very simply two responses to the word that's, that's preached, and we'll come to those. But let me give you a word on pastors. I, I can assure you that your pastors have no great confidence in their abilities. They don't wake up on Sunday morning saying, I cannot wait for people to hear me. It doesn't happen. I've never in almost 20 years of ministry had a morning where that's been the case. On the best day, there's a sense that I think this might be a fair representation of what the word of God says here. And hopefully I don't mess up the application too bad. Ordinarily, it's something more like this. This isn't close to being finished. I'm probably a heretic. And this does nothing close to to rendering the truth to God's people. There's that that sense of that every time of the weight of what's going on. And thankfully, you're, you're left with this enormous debt and dependence upon the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, fix what I can't fix. This is your word. These are your people. Do what they need for them. And that's the place we want to be in, preaching a message that's not ours, declaring dependence upon the Holy Spirit, having a truth that doesn't belong to us, to be given to God's people, and asking Him to do as much as He possibly can with it and get us out of the way as much as we can. This is why we wear robes. We're hoping to preserve some anonymity when we come up here. That, that maybe you won't recognize us. It's not the best disguise, but it helps you see a little less of us. And hopefully a little more of Christ. That you hear someone who is coming, who is in office, not serving themselves, but serving the word of God. And that brings us back to how do you respond to the word. Some resist the word. Some are are the irreligious, unbelieving. They're just straight up scoffers. They don't care. Some are the religiously resisting this is what I mean by covenant children or those who have long been associated with the church and yet somehow, some way, they continue to resist not giving themselves over to Christ, not wanting to believe the word, perhaps because of what it's at stake, that it really requires giving all of themselves if they are to believe the gospel. And some are simply foolish and delaying. They think, well, I'm just going to put this off a little bit longer. I just need a little more understanding. I just need to, to wait for this just a little bit more. All resist the word, all are under judgment, all are waiting on that wrath of God. But there are some who believe the word. They are a reason for rejoicing, just as Paul does. He says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. My brothers and sisters, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe his word preached. It is all true. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we look to you for that grace which belongs to you. A grace which only you can give, which is to take those who have been rebels, those who have resisted your word, those who have defiled themselves in body and soul, to look to you. For your work of grace that that which is true of Christ and what he has accomplished is applied to us. That you, by your spirit, cause us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we may be saved.